0: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So, I'm going to stop talking.
1: You probably know something about the rovers zigzagging over the surface of Mars, photographing cool stuff, but there's probably things you don't know. The first rover, Sojourner, weighed about the same as a small dog. The Curiosity rover, loaded with scientific equipment, is heavier than a Volkswagen Beetle. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Emily Lakdawalla talks about the design and construction of Curiosity, formerly known as the Mars Science Laboratory, one of the most sophisticated machines ever built. It landed on Mars in 2012, where it continues to conduct research within the ancient Gale Crater. Lakdawala is a senior editor at the Planetary Society, where she writes and blogs about planetary exploration. She's also the author of The Design and Engineering of Curiosity, How the Mars Rover Performs Its Job. Emily Lakdawala, thanks so much for talking to me today. It's my pleasure. So I think most people know about the Mars rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, that went up in 2004, but Curiosity is really different from these rovers. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the goals of Curiosity, the Mars Science Laboratory, I guess is its formal name.
2: Sure. Um, The Mars Science Laboratory Curiosity rover is kind of the pinnacle of NASA's second phase of Mars exploration. The first phase was uh, with the Mariners and the Vikings culminating in Vikings orbital mapping. And then there was a long gap. It began again in the late 90s. And there was this mantra that they stuck to for a long time called follow the water. Mm -hmm. There was evidence from orbit that there had been water acting on Mars, but it wasn't real clear if There had been water for a long time on the Martian surface, and people were interested in that because um, having uh, long-term presence of water would tend to make it easier for life to have begun there. And so um, with a bunch of missions, they mapped globally, and then they sent Spirit and Opportunity down to look for evidence in rocks of persistent liquid water and both spirit and opportunity found those found that evidence but they found uh, both of them found water in environments that aren't really that great for life they found highly acid water they found a volcanic fumarole and and other uh, places like that now these are all places on earth that you can find you can find microbes living but they're extremophiles they're especially adapted to survive in these kinds of extreme environments and so The next question then was, was there persistent water on Mars for a long time that was uh, maybe a a more benign environment, the kind of place that, that most life on Earth lives? And so Curiosity was sent to a different kind of landing site, one with more ancient rocks than had ever been visited by a lander before in the hopes of finding evidence for more habitable environments. And that's what it was sent to do. And that's what it did.
1: So it seems to me that the search for life or in this case you know the search for water which might lead to uh, indications for life was really one of the major drivers not only of the initial rovers but of of curiosity as well and I just wanted to get your opinion about this search for life It seems to drive so much of the discussion of of Mars research
2: that's definitely true and it's true that the search for life is kind of a motivating uh, force behind a lot of what space exploration does. It's not just the search for life, either present or past. It kind of getting deeper than that, it, it gets at the question of how we originated, how life on Earth originated, and whether life in the universe is common or not. And these are the kinds of, they're pretty profound questions That um, people find it fairly interesting to, or fairly easy to interest the public in. Mm -hmm. And I agree that it can sort of warp the science goals um, that people may have, um, because there's a lot of us, like me, who are just curious about other worlds and want to go explore them. At the same time, I think it's useful um, and necessary to have a motivating question kind of underpinning your research to kind of bring together lots of different threads to to try to provide a, a unifying goal that helps to that helps to make people work together basically to share their data they're all working toward a common end right
0: mm-hmm. I've
2: seen though that this this kind of making your research fit the question uh, does happen in a couple of other ways in space for instance there's there's been this recent rise of the ocean worlds at NASA that is kind of designed to help get missions to Enceladus and Europa and now all these scientists are saying that every world is an ocean world if you look at it right yeah. <laughs> so I definitely don't like that aspect of it, but I do think that it's uh, it's beneficial to, have, to be able to go back to a fairly profound question that is fairly easy to articulate, yeah, yeah. to help explain to the public why it's worth it to spend the kind of money and effort that we do sending missions into space.
1: One of the things that was kind of amazing about your book was just the, I mean, I knew a bit about the structures of Curiosity and the instruments that it carried, but To see you describe them in detail was pretty amazing. I was wondering if you could just lay out briefly a kind of a list of the various things that Curiosity can do, um, what it looks like, how it's supposed to move.
2: Sure. So um, the, the the basic body plan of Curiosity is actually very similar to the Spirit and Opportunity rovers. You have a central warm electronics box. This is an aluminum box. that's insulated from the outside environment that has heaters inside it to keep all the rover's electronics inside an acceptable operating range to keep it safe. Connected to the box, you've got the mobility system, which is a set of legs and wheels. And it's a special kind of mobility system called a rocker bogey suspension system. What that means is that you've got these sort of front arms connected to two wheels, and the back ends of those arms are connected to two bogies, like train bogies, which each have a pair of wheels. So in total, there's six wheels. And it's a really interesting uh, physical device that the rocker and bogey on each side are connected to the body only at one place at a central pivot. And so the rover would actually flop forward or backward on that pivot, except that they're connected to each other through a central linkage, a differential. And what that does is that when wheels are forced up on one side of the rover, they're forced down on the other side. And that keeps the rover body level even when the machine is climbing obstacles that are more than the height of a wheel. It's, it's pretty great. It's it's a passive system. There aren't motors inside those linkages. It actually, as the rover is moving, it just self levels. It's really great.
1: Yeah, you have a great picture in your book of uh, one of the rover, or the Curiosity rover mock ups, going over this massive rock. I mean, it must be yeah. like four feet high or something.
2: Yeah, and, and it can climb things like that. Um, now, of course, you have to be careful not to um, high stand the rover with its belly pan on one of those rocks, but it is capable of driving over obstacles like that. So then you also have a mast um, toward the front end of the rover that, that lifts cameras, both science cameras and engineering cameras, off the surface. And those cameras are in stereo pairs, which means there's a left eye and a right eye. And you can get 3D information by comparing images taken through the two eyes for both the science and the engineering cameras. There is a radio communication system. There's three different antennas on the rover. There's one for communicating with orbiters passing overhead, which is how they get most of the data down from the rover to Earth through an orbital relay then there is a, a low-gain pole antenna, which is not steerable, and a high-gain steerable antenna for direct communication with Earth. And so the pole antenna is mostly for emergencies. Like if there's a major malfunction, the robot stops everything and just radios for help. And it does that through its pole antenna because you can't rely on it knowing exactly where Earth is in the sky. But as long as it knows where Earth is, it can point the high-gain antenna at Earth. And that's how it receives its daily um, list of commands is through that high-gain antenna. hmm And then, let's see, there's a robotic arm that carries on the end of it a camera and a brush for Curiosity and uh, a drill and a sample handling mechanism and a compositional device. And then inside the belly of the rover are these two enormous laboratory instruments that are really the heart of the Curiosity mission that can ingest samples and tell us about their composition.
1: So there's a drill bit that actually drills and pulverizes the rock, and then it makes it available for instruments within the rover to analyze?
2: Basically, yeah. The, the drill on the end of the arm is a percussion drill. If you've ever drilled through concrete, it's, it's kind of like that. It uses a sharp pounding hammer and a very kind of blunt chisel-shaped bit um, while rotating it to both pulverize and drill into rock as it's drilling into a target. And so it's the action of the drill, the percussion action of the drill that powders up the rock. And then as the drill moves into the rock, there's a sleeve around the drill bit. And once that sleeve touches the rock, then all of the drill powder goes up through the sleeve into a collection chamber behind the drill bit. And then from there, it goes into a sample handling mechanism with sieves and portioners that can portion out very small amounts of uh, precisely sized sample to deliver it to the two instruments unfortunately, because of a problem with the drill on Mars, that, that actually happened right as my book was going to press. Um, they probably won't be able to use that sieving and sample handling mechanism anymore, even though they will still be able to deliver samples to the rover.
1: I know there was some debate early on about, uh, as, as budgets started to get tight at NASA, about um, ways they could kind of pare back on some of the instruments. And there was a discussion about uh, removing some of the capabilities of the cameras on the mast. And mm-hmm. it was interesting, you said that uh, James Cameron had been interested in curiosity from a kind of film perspective. And, and you, you wrote, uh, if Cameron lost interest because the new mast cam was not a tool he could use for his art the loss of public outreach value, high-definition stereo video from Mars, directed and distributed by a rich, well-connected, Oscar-winning director is incalculable. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of of that. It really kind of felt to me like you were saying this was a big deal.
2: Oh, yeah, it really was a big deal. It was a big, big hit both to science and to public involvement in the mission. You know, with movies being 3D and with director a director like Cameron being into... This mission, you know, it would have had, I think, a lot more penetration into the public consciousness than it now has. Curiosity was really a moment of public excitement when it landed, but it's kind of faded from public notice since then. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the mission still uh, is doing interesting things. It's always been kind of a slow moving mission, just by the nature of its complexity. Um, and so it would have been, I think, very cool to have um, Cameron come along a couple years later, no doubt, and have some have produced something using the camera system on the rover. But, you know, that's, it's not the way it happened. And and that's all right too. I mean, they the mission has done a lot of um, great science, but it they did miss this opportunity for public outreach.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that at the beginning. It was uh, there was a lot of public interest, and I, I remember um, when the mission was, I guess, uh, when Curiosity was in transit and getting ready for descent. That this video came out, uh, seven minutes of terror, which um, yeah. which you write about actually in your book and. I just checked this morning. It's got 2.6 million views. <laughs> I was wondering why you think that, made, that video made such a big impact.
2: Well, um, I think because it was produced by people who clearly knew what they were doing when it came to producing a video that would, would excite and inspire the public. It's got uh, high production values. It's got um, dramatic music and dramatic lighting on the protagonist. Yeah. And then also they were willing to admit fear. They weren't overplaying their fear, but they were saying, this is a difficult, a very challenging thing. We may not succeed, but um, we're telling you about it anyway. And that admission was a was a real emotional hook to the public. So it, it, it gave them an interest in what happened on the day of the landing.
1: I think... There's always been a kind of dilemma in robotic exploration about, you know, how do we create the drama of a human mission to to places? It seems like we we keep bumping up against that. And it was very interesting in that video, the degree to which um, through music and I'll make sure I put a link to this on the uh on the blog site uh, but the degree to which uh, it really does make you kind of think it this thing can't possibly land successfully right I mean it's just not really gonna happen you know it really actually yeah. elicits this feeling of danger you're actually worried about this craft as it comes down I I was quite impressed with it, uh, both at the time and when I looked at it again. You know, the other thing I I noticed about your discussion, it's a a very internal discussion in the sense that you're really focusing a lot on the craft. But then you are also coming back out to talk about the importance of the public. You do it with um, the issue of the mast, but also with things like, you know, when funding becomes an issue, I guess Steve Squires, who's the PI for the science payload for the earlier um, rovers. He he comes out and says we might need to shut down one of the rovers in order to make money for this. And the public kind of freaks out. Could you talk about that?
2: <laughs> yeah, the public has always been really important in terms of uh, motivating robotic exploration. You know, it makes things interesting because um, on the one hand, the scientists are extremely grateful for the support that they get. Um, on robotic missions. You should see, um, I don't know if you've read Alan Stern and David Grinspoon's new book on chasing New Horizons, but they talk uh, many times about how New Horizons was saved by public support. Hmm. The Planetary Society, uh, which I work for, is in the business of mobilizing public support for missions and making sure that we get um, adequate funding to keep our space exploration programs going. And so it's of central importance, scientists and engineers like what Uh, Both of them are very grateful to the public for the support that they give. But then I think also there's a bit of tension there because the missions that the public likes and would select are not necessarily aligned with the priorities of scientists. And there's been a few missions lately that, you know, they're really important scientifically, but they're, I think, a little bit more difficult to sell to the public. I'm thinking about things like the the MAVEN mission, which is exploring the upper atmosphere of Mars, or the InSight Lander, which is a geophysical mission that'll be very interesting, but it's also deliberately targeting the most boring possible landing <laughs> site, site on Mars, and it's going to be sitting absolutely still for most of its mission. Yeah. Even Juno, its science mission is actually the science results I write about them, they're very difficult to explain because we're talking about physics of you know, the geophysics, the deep interior of Jupiter and that magnetosphere and stuff. And thank goodness they at least put a camera on that just for public outreach purposes because otherwise that mission would be really difficult to, to sell to the public. And so um, I do think that there's an obligation to make sure that the missions that we're doing address public curiosity as well as scientific curiosity. And so I think that not all, not all scientists would agree with that. <laughs> they would like the missions to be picked based entirely on yeah. scientific merit. But the public are, I think, owed scientific missions that they can understand and be excited about.
1: Uh, I want to return just for a second to um, uh, something that you said at the beginning of your book about the Curiosity mission. And you say, I came to understand that this machine was the most complicated thing ever sent beyond our planet and that no one on earth understands all of its parts and functions. I was wondering if you could just uh, talk about that.
2: Yes, I kept on coming across um, engineers who worked on the mission who could tell me every last detail about the part that they worked on, but they don't necessarily know how other parts of the rover work. And scientists know how their instrument works, but not as much other instruments, I kept on teaching geology to engineers and teaching engineering <laughs> to scientists. And um, there's just it, there's too much. It is is too much for one person to understand. And so, I think I, in writing this book, have become one of the people who knows the most about all of the rover. Yeah. But of course, my knowledge is beaten in every aspect by the experts on different parts of the rover. There's only one other person who has the same, a better broad understanding of what the rover can do, I think. And that's uh, Ashwin Vasavada, the project scientist who's been on the mission since its hmm. inception. He's, got, he's had to have a handle on the engineering, but also knows all of the science. So, um, But it's really difficult. It's really complicated. And there are just so many details to know that I'm that's one of the motivating reasons actually for writing this book is to give the people who work on the mission a reference to the parts of the spacecraft that they don't necessarily know that much about.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I had I had an experience of this when I was at the Johnson Space Center a few years ago. I was doing a research project and I have to, happened to be visiting, I think it was the true uh, crew training uh, area and you know the people there were so unbelievably knowledgeable about what the cr- crew needs to do and the kind of interface of the crew with you know spacesuits and various machines and then you realize this is just one of like dozens and dozens of of different departments just at houston and it was a little frightening to think of <laughs> about putting human human beings into these crafts where it's also i mean it's just a kind of marvel i don't know i i yeah I don't, I don't even know where this is a question I can just, just Well just it's not minutes. a question
2: but I think what you're getting at is the fact that um, on top of all of the the details of the engineering which are fascinating challenging and difficult you you just realize that it takes amazing systems engineering to make all of these things work together there have to be so many people involved who are not actual actually, you know, building components. Instead, they're managers and engineer managers who figure out how to write specifications and check compliance and do all that. It sounds a little boring, but without it, these spacecraft would not work. And so there's that whole level of management that's necessary to make these missions work. And you realize that it's not just engineering and science geniuses. It's, it's, administrative geniuses who have to keep these things going as well.
1: Yeah, you have this really interesting example of that. Um, I can't remember what chapter where you talk about how the goal was to create motors that could be lubricated with dry lubrication within the Curiosity rover. And then you figure out that, no, that can't be done. Uh, So we're going to need to use wet lubricants, which need to be heated. And then the the heating requires more weight. Uh, I mean, it was just like one one of these things that, well, could you talk about that? Like the ways in which one system kind of affect other systems?
2: Yeah, that that's a real bit. And it's still kind of echoing down to this day. So they really wanted, uh, initially, they wanted to design this rover to be able to operate anywhere on Mars, basically. And the big challenge is um, cold temperatures, especially as you get farther away from the equator. The motors that that we had that were certified for use in space require this wet lubricant that gets very viscous at low temperatures. So it won't break the motors, but you can't run the motors when it's too cold because the lubricant doesn't work. So they were developing a different kind of motor with a dry lubricant, like a graphite based lubricant or some other similar, very slippery, but dry material. And the effort went well for a while. Um, they developed motors that worked well, but then in life testing, they just wore out. They found that the gear teeth were breaking off, and um, there was really no way to salvage the design. It was just it was a design that didn't work for the application they needed it for. And so, very late in the game, they had to go back to a wet lubricant design. But there were all kinds of issues. They didn't have time to design redesign the motors from scratch. Um, But they had to be made out of a different material, which made them heavier. They required heating, but they had to put the heaters on the outside instead of the inside because they couldn't redesign the motors. And so when you're talking about a gargantuan motor, the size of the thing that you need to roll a wheel on a one-ton machine, that's a big block of metal that takes a long time to heat. And so it impacts the amount of time that Curiosity can drive. It has a huge impact on power. And Curiosity was already very power-limited. Also, the late development of the motors meant that they weren't delivered in time to get the arm integrated and testing started, and so testing got delayed. So yeah, it cascaded in all these different directions. Eventually, it was the motors were one of the main things that broke the launch schedule and required the mission to be delayed by two years yeah. for the next launch opportunity.
1: Which actually might have been a help, it sounds like.
2: It, it actually was a big help in a lot of ways. So they they were able to address a number of problems. Like They doubled the size of the battery so that the power situation wouldn't be as bad as it was before. They redesigned an instrument that actually wouldn't have worked very well on Mars <laughs> because of a different um, systems engineering failure. And so that two years was actually very beneficial to, the, to mission success.
1: You know, um, when I was reading that part of your book, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Janet for Tessie's book, uh, Seeing Like a Rover, uh-huh. in which uh, she's, I guess she's talking about spirit and uh, opportunity, the earlier rovers, but Uh, she kind of lays out this dance that the rover teams have to come up with in terms of uh, figuring out where to steer the rovers, what to look at, how to analyze it. And as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking like, well, this is just like multiplied by 15. When you look at the actual construction of curiosity, there are so many different areas, so many different parts. And I was wondering if you saw in your uh, research on this book, uh, ways in which people figure out how to communicate with each other, so that these unbelievably system-level tasks can get done.
2: That's a good question. I think that the way it worked was that all of that kind of chain of command and all those conversations were organized years before landing. I mean, that's kind of that's some of the first hmm. stuff you do. Um, is the is systems, figuring, systems yeah, level figuring stuff? figuring out the systems, just organizing the system. And so, you know, that's that's a way in which it's good to have as experienced an organization as the Jet Propulsion Laboratory building your spacecraft, because those systems obviously can be carried over from one mission to another. You know, they've developed this method of organizing the development and, and assembly integration and testing of a spacecraft. And and those systems are not different from one mission to another. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a part of the book that describes the, the surface operations and the the number of different organizational groups they need to, to keep that running, which was developed from the spirit and opportunity. Uh, mission operations, but is has this added level of complexity because the rover is so big and using it is so complicated, so that there's actually three or four parallel planning processes happening at the same time in order to make sure that the mission team is ready every day with a set of commands to give to the rover.
1: So I was wondering, I know that you are a senior editor at the uh, Planetary Society, and You also are, you do radio, you do the planetary radio show, Um, you served as a deputy project manager, manager for one of the Mars projects. And I was just looking at your blogs on your blog side. I mean, just in the past month, you've got blog posts about the moons of Saturn, Insight, the new Mars mission, the mission, uh, the Philae mission to, uh, to a comet. You've got the Juno mission. I mean, you're, you're actually actively writing about seven or eight different planetary projects uh, at the same time. And I was wondering, how do you do a deep dive like this on one project, one massive project hmm while simultaneously kind of doing all these other things?
2: It's hard. And um, one of the ways that I was able to do it was by uh, asking for and uh, obtaining permission to have a sabbatical last year. So I spent three months just working on the book. I have managed to structure my work schedule so that most of the time, I can spend um, three days a week doing Planetary Society uh, blog and everything else, and then two days a week working on my book. Although I'll have to admit, lately I've had a hard time doing that, and I'm supposed to be writing the, the follow-up book to this volume on Curiosity Science. So it's hard. It's a juggling act. You just have to be uh, aggressive about scheduling your time and being willing to drop balls in order to to spend the necessary time doing that deep dive on a book. I do try to set aside full days in order to, you know, to spend a little time in the morning doing email and then spend a full day working on the book. Cause that's really the only way to make progress is to get deeply into it for a full day.
1: Yeah. I was talking on the podcast a few weeks ago to a uh, paleoanthropologist, uh, John Hawks at the university of Wisconsin. And he's very much in the weeds of his anthropological research, but he also believes a lot in science communication. He's a huge advocate of it. And I was thinking that you are also kind of, you have a foot in both worlds. You're a scientist, but you're also a public intellectual. You do a lot of science outreach. And I, I think that uh, that's a pretty unique and rare position for people to actually do both of those. What do you see as you know the benefits or maybe the hazards of that job?
2: Well, I'm doing this because it's, it's what I want to do. You know, when I was in graduate school, I had this very strong sensation that the work that I was doing and putting so much effort into was, you know, it would, might result in a paper that if I was lucky, maybe seven people would read. And it just didn't yeah. feel like it was worth it. And I had come from um, before grad school, I was a middle school science teacher. And I had the same feeling where it was an incredible amount of work to prepare for those for classes yeah. every day. And I taught maybe 75 kids total. It was a school with fairly small classes. And again, it just, it didn't feel justified. So I don't, it almost feels a little bit egotistical to say this, but I wanted my work to be to influence more people. And so I saw myself in some kind of science communication role. The one that I was imagining when I was in grad school was working in a museum. Uh, My father is an art historian. I'd grown up in in art museums and other kinds of museums. And And I saw that being like a curator or working on exhibit research and development at a, at a science museum as being something that I could do. And, what I do for the Planetary Society is, is actually very similar to that. I curate news stories, I curate space images, and I write about them and I interpret them and present them to the world and help more people uh, see what's going on. So um, as far as like uh, advantages or pitfalls, the advantage is that I get to reach a, a ton of people a pitfall is that, um, as you noticed, I cover a lot of things and I can't get that deeply into things. And so, yeah. um, I do make mistakes. And I have generally very kind readers who um, send me polite emails <laughs> when they notice that I've made errors. Sometimes my errors, though, are are bigger, and people get upset, and that's that's always harder to deal with. It's it's hard to balance thoroughness and complete fact checking with the necessity of having such a broad. Output. I do I, what I try to do is I try to keep my subject area um, as broad as it is, it's still contained. So I write about robotic space exploration, I write about our solar system, I don't write about human space exploration, I don't write about private stuff, I don't write about solar science, I don't write about exoplanets or black holes you know things like that i just focus on the solar system mm-hmm. and by keeping by keeping it contained i can at least build up my expertise in that area
1: yeah everything within the solar system sounds very small to me <laughs> 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 anyway emily lactoille thank you so much for talking with me today
2: you're very welcome it's been a great conversation
1: That's it for today. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website and Twitter page for links and updates. The Twitter page also has a link to Zabrat, the great Canadian band that makes the music for the show. Also, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It does help make the show visible to new listeners. If you want to recommend a guest or make a comment or just get in touch, feel free to contact me at time to eat the dogs. That's one word lowercase at gmail.com. See you next week.